Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're going to be talking about the great critic and poet William Empson. And I'm joined on the line from Princeton by Michael Wood, Professor Emeritus of Comparative Literature at Princeton and the author of a new book on Empson. Michael, welcome. Thank you. Now, to a lot of people, I would think, Empson sounds like rather a sort of obscure literary critic, but he's one who's influence has been very considerable. I mean, can you tell me what's, you know, if I ask a very basic question, what's so important about Empson? Yeah, I think he sounds, he sounds usually like the name of, uh, of a horse race or, or, or a form of salt, as is the, the, <laughs> is the, is the more common. That's what, that's what Spellcheck always thinks. It's, it turns it into Epsom without, without hesitation. Uh, I think he's, he's a figure who is a bit like a ghost in literary criticism, never quite present and never quite absent, I think. Whenever, whenever anybody reads him, they get quite excited or bowled over or angry or something, you know, and then he vanishes from view. So histories don't really, you know, he's not a, he's thought to be a member of the New Critics, the American School of Criticism, and he was sort of founded New Criticism, along with uh, with his tutor at Cambridge, uh, I.A. Richards. Uh, but, he, but he himself disavowed the movement, uh, hated most of what they did, and so on, and was never sort of routinely connected with them. And I think the thing that keeps him going, keeps him in our, our minds, is that he was endlessly fascinated by language. And the moment language comes to the center of the picture, Empson is quite helpful. Well, he's usually not trying to be helpful. He's usually trying to be annoying. <laughs> but he, uh, <laughs> he is actually helpful. He was astonishingly quick out of the gates as well, wasn't he? I mean, there's this story that's much mythologized about how his, it was more or less an undergraduate thesis at the age of 24 became, you know, this foundational volume in modern critical theory not even a thesis sam it was it was meant to be a weekly essay for his for his uh, supervision as they say in cambridge and, you know, that he he went into cia richards his, his supervisor he'd just been reading robert graves and law writing on shakespeare and and they were finding all kinds of, uh, of subtleties in different punctuation and emerson said to richards you could do this with anything couldn't you and richards said well you better go have a go when he he went off for a week came back his next weekly supervision and said, uh, I need a bit more time. And then he came back a week later with the whole book. <laughs> Wait, and that <laughs> book was... different mentions about the length of it. It was either 30,000 words or 15,000 words, but it was a lot. And he essentially wrote the, the, the heart, the, the basic form of uh, the first book, Seven Types of Ambiguity, for that, that supervision in Cambridge. And Seven Types of Ambiguity, this sort of idea that ambiguity was ab- absolutely central to what? literature did is that something that goes through his career or is it something that he he later refines it, it goes through his career but in a in a rather there's an interesting break i think to, in between the sort of early and it, it's all through the early and middle career and generally he thinks ambiguity equals riches it's a form of interpretative wealth and the more of it the more you get the better it's a bit like exercise that you can't have too much of it. it's good for the mind and the more <laughs> meaning you can find the better the thrill of reading him is to think, uh, I would never have thought of that. And not necessarily I agree with that, or even I like it. Just I would never have thought of such a thing in relation to, you know, Alice in Wonderland. I never thought that proletarian literature of the 1920s was really a form of pastoral, for example. <laughs> I've never thought various things and so on. I've never thought Alice in Wonderland was a form of pastoral either. All those things are very exciting. And somewhere, when, when he, he spent a lot of his time in his early years after Cambridge in China and Japan, and after the war, he went back to China. And then his later years, he began to feel this ambiguity thing was getting out of control. 
I think both for him and for his readers. So I think in the early work, he trusted us to sort of deal with ambiguities. The, the, the more the better, and we would deal with which ones we liked and which ones we didn't like. In later life, he got rather worried about that. And actually, there is a poem where he more or less says, I'm going to stop writing poetry because I'm going crazy here with these contradictions and ambiguities. I can't take it anymore. The last line of the poem is, you don't want madhouse and the whole thing there. To, to a lot of people, I think, sort of would think, right, he's one of these close readers who's fiendishly attentive to the text, you know, discerns 4,096 different readings of Sonnet 94 and so forth. And yet the really strange thing about him, it seems to me, and you bring it out very well in your book, is that actually he was deeply interested in the artist's intention, as it could be described, and the relation of the art to the world itself. How does he square that circle? I think he, he never really managed to square... But you're absolutely right. That is how, that is how he felt. And he, but he, I think he never managed to square the circle. That the, he was torn between the idea of an author's intention, uh, a book being situated in a world... He, he thought a book, a piece of literature was, this is a point Christopher Norris, uh, a critic, has written very well about it. He, he never separated literature from ordinary language and ordinary speech. He thought literature was a form of ordinary speech, just rather well done. So he, uh, ordinary people think and talk like this, he wanted to say. And, and ordinary people are situated in an ordinary real world. They're living in that world and they think in it and tell stories in it and make sense of each other's lives in it. And so it's all a very ordinary business, and it's very human, and it can't be too complicated. At the same time, he, he just kept seeing complications, uh, even in the simplest things. And I think he never quite he was he never quite reconciled, if you like, his sense of moral purpose that things should be pretty straightforward and you know, no nonsense really, and his incredible gift for finding complications. I think I think he became rather ashamed of his gift in later life, actually. As a stylist, as well. I mean. You, you have a lovely phrase in the book where you say it combines high-powered thought and offhand statement. I mean, a lot of the time he does have that kind of talky quality, doesn't he? Yeah, it's a, sort of, it's a curious style. I think he, he, he himself thought that his second book, Some Versions of Pastoral, was a little bit too, too slangy and too casual that people might not take it, that he was, the people thought he was not taking things seriously. But I think he was always trying to sort of uh, uh, look for that sort of tone of a certain kind of uh, excitement and a sort of boyish quality about, about it all. This is all a bit of a lark, but we're going to say some interesting stuff here. And that he thought that was not incompatible with saying really serious things. But I think you do get that terrific feeling of swagger, particularly in the diction, the rhythm of sentences and things. It's an, it is an extraordinary style. I mean, Empson's eccentricities, you know, we he travelled to Japan with a suitcase containing only a pair of tennis shoes and a lemon and... He was notorious for using bits of old bacon as bookmarks and that sort of thing. How much was that a sort of put-on thing, or was he just genuinely very, very eccentric kind of character? I think he was genuinely very eccentric, and I think he, uh, I, th I think he was eccentric on the sort of principle. I mean, the, the genuineness was: look, one has a right to, to behave as one wants. To when we, you know, he had this. He was married, but they had this rather open relationship. The wife had lovers. He himself, on the whole, I don't know whether he ever did much about his sex life, but he, he, he on the whole, preferred boys to girls. And, and so then they had this commune living in the house in Hampstead. So there was this sort of extraordinary, you know, rather relaxed view about all kinds of things. It's a big thing about Troilism as well, didn't he? I mean, there was obviously some, yes, yes. you know, he kind of liked the idea of being cuckolded in some way, which was... Yeah, he did. He sort of did, and, and I think he like and, and and often often he rather admired his wife's lovers. Everyone wanted to be part of that that team as well. Yeah. So there is, there is a sort of genuine. And then I think there's there's also a kind of bizarre 
and this is just my perspective, I, I associate with certain kinds of English upper class behavior, that this is all, one view is it, it, I'm as eccentric as I wish to be because it's part of the exercise of my freedom. And the other thing is it's not eccentric at all. This is just how people really are. Uh, only other people don't admit it. I do. You saw him, <laughs> didn't you? I mean, there's a, there's a bit early in the book where you say you actually saw him lecture in '74. He gave. I saw him in giving a lecture in Cambridge, and it was sort of. It was a. It was like. It was a bit like some kind of Monty Python version of the of the, of the lecture. You know, he had. He, he had a suit and a tie and somebody he, he only had a, a script of some kind, but he kept pulling bits of paper out of his pocket and saying, this is what, oh, I, someone said to me this last week, and what about this? And then he kept diving off into different tangents. And and it was not clear that he was entirely sober at the time. <laughs> so <laughs> it, was, it was a riveting performance because there was the kind of terrific excitement about him. But if you were looking for an, an orderly, you know, a proper properly mannered university lecturer that wasn't it well there's that <laughs> that sense of him isn't there of the of just a mind that's so sort of hyper aware and constantly arguing with himself and everybody around him that, I mean, yes. you, do you think he found it i mean temperamentally quite difficult to be in the world there's a bit in john haffenden's biography of him that i just completely stuck in my head when he comes back from japan and he stops over in Los Angeles and just goes climbing up to the top of a hill and just screams until he feels better. Yes, yes, yes. I think he often found it quite difficult to be. I, so I think, you know, again, like a lot of, this is, this is not so much an upper-class thing, it was an English thing. Like a lot of English people, he was a stoic at, at heart. So, so you, you had to put up with all kinds of stuff, you know. And that would include forms of craziness and loneliness and despair and so on. Which you and there are moments in the in the writing where you you suddenly realise he's taking for granted a kind of ordinary normal living, huge amounts of disappointment, disappoint even despair. But you've got to get on with it, and then you find the the other things there are in life. But I think there was a certain kind of difficulty uh, always that he did never fully recognise as a difficulty. I think, or thought he would be not quite right to allow the status of difficulty to these things. Yes, you talk about fright being a, a, a yes. quality of his of his criticism. I mean, and also the poems, you know, all the really good poems are about being afraid of things. Boy, was he, was he says, boy's afraid of girl, as usual. This is... Boy afraid of girl, but also later on it's sort of like, like a, a whole culture is afraid of, of the impending war. Uh, people, people are afraid of behaving badly. People are afraid of not having, having... People know they will need courage, but they're afraid they won't have it. You know, a bit like, a bit like uh, the old the old A. W. Mason's the the novel of the, the Four Feathers. You know, it's all about courage and honour and things like that. Where uh, are we going to be up to it when duty calls or when you know heroism calls? Will we turn out to be cowards? And a lot of the poems are very very powerful about that, both about the fear and about the, the sort of false consolations we find for ourselves in these in these things. I mean, that last poem you mentioned, I think it's Missing Dates, isn't it, is the one that ends with You Don't Want the uh, House. The, the last one is called Let It Go. Oh, it's, it's Let It Go. It's not quite the last poem, but it's, it's his farewell to poetry. He wrote a couple of things after that. Uh, he wrote a ballad or two, and he wrote a mask for the Queen's visit to Sheffield <laughs> after that. But he, but that poem, Let It Go, is very striking about the, You Don't Want Madhouse and the whole thing there. And you talk in the book about the idea that in some way he writes mad books in prose in order to kind of save himself from having to deal with the deeper and more terrifying madness of poetry. I mean, I'm paraphrasing you. That, that seems to be what he's saying, I think. that He, he, he said, he, what he, he, he read to Christopher Ricks saying that he, he, was going to give, he was giving up writing poetry because he had no theme anymore. It had all been done and, and he, was, he was there like, 
He had a theme before the war, the 30s, the impending war, the crisis in the world. That was his theme. And now he had no theme. He didn't have to write poetry anymore. But the poem Let It Go suggests that, that actually there was a kind of craziness encouraged by poetry. The poetry fostered a craziness in him and he didn't want to go there anymore. And however brave he was, he still had to sort of turn aside. Yeah, and then and then he had to. So he he went there a couple of times, but in a rather much safer sort of way. You could write a commission piece for the Queen. You could write a couple of poems that were translations from the Chinese, but you wouldn't go back into your own mind in the way those earlier poems had done. But you could sort of go in your own mind in criticism. But even then, I think a lot of that later work is fencing with. He's replaced what might have felt like an internal enemy with an external one, all those damned Christians and all those people that, he, that he's busy attacking. Well, that is something I wanted to move on to. I mean, his last book published during his lifetime was Milton's God, wasn't it? Yes. And that will seem to a lot of people sort of quite a perverse thing. Arguing that, you know, Milton's writing theodicy, he's justifying the ways of God to man, he's a Puritan priest, and essentially Empson reads the whole thing as a kind of poison pen letter to the Almighty. Very well put. Yes, I mean, and I, what's interesting is is it has a high standing among Miltonists now. That book does it. See, at, at the beginning, it, it was thought to be an attack on C.S. Lewis and, and the whole school, and completely no Miltonist, no respectable Miltonist would even touch it. And then gradually, I think Miltonists have come round to the view, not exactly agreeing with it, but feeling that he was onto something. And nobody else has, has been quite as good as Emerson on on the, if you like, the spot Milton found himself in. Milton wrote a great poem to defend the indefensible. And if you don't see the indefensible, if you don't see what's indefensible about God, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> that's, that's just the argument, I think. Exactly. But is there a sense in which his feeling against Christianity? was itself a sort of curdled religious feeling. I was just struck by something when you have him reading a line of Nash. Yes. And he quite says he gives a specifically Christian fusion of these two elements into a humility so profound as to make the hope of personal immortality hardly more than incidental to a consciousness of the love of God. And there's a sort of pulse of feeling in that. There is, there is. There it is. seems to me to countermand a kind of Dawkins-ish atheism. Yeah. I think that's right. And I think, in a sense, he, it's a very specific aspect of Christianity he doesn't like. You know, he, what he doesn't like, really, is the, is the creation of hell. He thinks that hell, and, and actually, specifically, he doesn't, he, he, first of all, he doesn't like the idea of a religion based on the, on the idea of torture. So this, this includes the crucifixion, the, the father who sacrifices his son, and the whole notion of hell where people are tortured forever. But what he particularly dislikes is the idea that one of the, uh, one of the pleasures of people in heaven is to look down on hell and see other people suffering. This is explicitly part of, you know, uh, it, I mean, Christians don't usually talk about it much, but it is part of the doctrine. Yes. It's in Aquinas. This, this, this notion that among the good fun you can have is seeing, when you're blessed, is seeing how, how, how much the others are suffering. And he thought this was just a kind of noxious human invention. And other religions didn't have it. That's why he, he was very keen on Buddhism. And I think he thought Buddhism had a kind of wisdom and equanimity to it that Christianity lacked, that it, Buddhism was not a religion of hatred, and that Christianity is full of hating its, its enemies, of scorning and, and condemning people. And I think, in that sense, I think there is, is what you say you know, very well, there's a kind of curdled feeling of religion there, that, that if he, he wouldn't be so angry about Christianity if he didn't feel it, it was a religion had gone wrong. You know, that, that a, an ordinary atheist wouldn't care that a, that a religion had gone wrong. We might be rather pleased. Yeah. But he, uh, he really, I think there is a strong feeling that, human, that religion at its best represents human beings at their best. And this, uh, this Christianity stuff is a really poor show in this competition. He went quite far into Buddhism as well, didn't he? I mean, there's this book that's just did, emerged yeah. of his yeah. study of the Buddhas. Yeah. 
Yeah, he 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 spent. He got very interested in in in, in statues of of Buddha and famous statues all over the East. And every time he had a holiday or a break, he got on a plane or a train or something and went to look at another of these famous places in Japan, in China, in Korea, in Burma, and so on. And and he took photos and he, and he wrote this this little book about him, which was lost until very recently, until two thousand three, I think. Emerson gave gave the book to a friend of his, and both of them, I think, were drunk at the time. And the friend left it in a taxi. He said, <laughs> and that was the end of the book. And Emerson died thinking that was the case that the, the book had just been lost. And then it turned out the friend hadn't left it in a taxi. He'd given it to another friend who'd given it to someone else. It ended up in the in the papers of a magazine or of a, pa- a person. When the papers went to the British Museum, the book showed up. It's a very Emersonian <laughs> kind of trajectory <laughs> for that book to take. And then it's edited and published. And it's a wonderful thing because it sort of it has all this jaunty, jokey, uh, jovial English stuff about these funny, funny Orientals, you know, at the same time, he loves these Buddha faces and he's, he's, he's committed to the idea that, that the faces are asymmetrical and that the left side, and the right side tell different stories and that we need to look at both sides of a face to see these stories. And they, this, it's like a story of ambiguity in a way that the, the left and the right face, faces tell different stories and we need to somehow reconcile the stories or deal with the difference. Is that taken at all seriously among scholars of these Buddhas? The, uh, it's, it's, the situation, according to the guy, Rupert Arrowsmith, who edited the, uh, the book, it's, the jury's still out. Some people think it's just nonsense, and some people think it's perfectly obvious. Right. <laughs> so, there isn't much uh, consensus about him. What is true, uh, and Arrowsmith points this out, is that in the 1930s, people, uh, psychologists, not, not, uh, not theologians and not, not people interested in Buddha, but people in the West interested in psychology, were very keen on the fact that the human face is asymmetrical. And you can read different pieces of the face, different stories of the life in the different sides of the face. And this is a great you know, boon to psychology. I mean, then it was suddenly, suddenly thought to be terribly old-fashioned and like some kind of uh, old-fashioned uh, physiognomy or something. Yeah. And people gave it up. But they did for a while believe it. Emerson was very good about that because he, he pointed out the, different, the German theories and the French theories agreed on the difference between the two sides of the face, but they allocated the different means to the different sides of the face. So the Germans and the French had <laughs> the right side meant the opposite, but it meant to the French, whatever it was, the Germans. So it wasn't a very coherent theory. Yes, it's two different sorts of ambiguity. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's funny you you had another little brush with him which i was very interested to read in the book i mean you you wrote about him and only discovered long after his death he'd written back yes i well i, I wrote him there was a book i think when he was when he retired sheffield when he, when he was professor of english at sheffield and he retired in 1970 something 73 or 74 and there was a sort of fest trip a book was put together by roma and gill of essays on, on things, and I and I was given this book to review for the New York Review of Books, and then did review it. And yeah, I said all, you know, all kinds of things about it. But I was then at that point. This is 1970. I was then. Um, Rather, I thought this Christianity stuff was was not not just not not just outrageous. I just it was rather old-fashioned. We got beyond all that stuff. You know, of course, I was wrong, but that was what I thought at the time. And uh, so I was rather condescending to him, I'm afraid, about the uh, on the topic of his you know rather weird persistence that this Christianity business mattered. And so he wrote a long letter to the New York Review, which he didn't send uh, in the end. And then later, John Haffenden uh, showed the letter to me, and then and also it, does, it appears in the selected letters. And it's very interesting because he actually he defends his his insistence on Christianity in a very very eloquent way. 
you know, the, the, he says that, you know, everybody's seen around me. I thought Christianity was dead too, but here it is everywhere. And here they are, all these critics are coming out, you know. And uh, he, he did think anyone who disagreed with him was a neo-Christian. So he thought Frank Kermode, for example, was a neo-Christian. So that was his way of, you know, aligning the enemy. But it was a very good defense of his interest and his worry about these about these things. And then the letter, so I think the reason he didn't send it, because the letter then went off into all kinds of other subjects about the Pope, Catholicism, birth control, and sort of <laughs> lost, it, lost its track entirely. And I think he then just sat on the letter. But it was it was very interesting. And he was right, you know, it was, I thought he was, essentially I thought he was right. And I also, I'd had a, an interesting thing. I received a rebuke from a, a friend, a former teacher of mine, came to my, a man called, called Peter Stern, who had said, because I'd made some joke about that, you know, no need to go on about Christianity because God's dead, essentially, get on with it, you know. And my friend, uh, Peter Stern, thought this was an outrageous thing to say, you know, that, that God is, whether God is dead is not is an open question and one should be, you know, it's a serious issue and one should not be flippant about it. Now, again, I think Peter was right. I know it was a pretty good joke, but on the other hand, I think he was too flippant. <laughs> so. Greater wisdom comes with age. Well, you've certainly... Yes, exactly. You've exactly. certainly made your amends in this book. <laughs> Michael, thank you very much indeed for your time. Uh, Sam, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. 